Tonight's guest is a philosopher concerned with the current state of our culture, its irrationalities, subjectivism, and self-destructive altruism. He traces it all back to one man and the solution to one woman. Vega Martinsen, welcome to the Cave of Pillars. Thank you. So, on the menu tonight, we have an overview over the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, whom I think you have described as highly destructive. Yes. And I am especially eager to, to highlight in his impact and the consequences of his impact within culture and, and aesthetics. And parallel to this, we'll be talking about Ayn Rand, her philosophy of objectivism and how it could be a antidote to, uh, to Kant's influence. And uh, we'll especially take a look at her book, The Romantic Manifesto, which I think might help create a new renaissance. Uh, now, we've had some complaints that we've had too few female guests on our show. So I hope you're up to giving mm -hmm. us the female perspective. Well, <laughs> I'm not a female guest, but uh, perhaps Ayn Rand can provide a female perspective on these very important issues that you mentioned. Right. Now, first off, uh, it's fair to let the, the viewers get to know you a bit. Uh, so you are a philosopher concerned with objectivism. When did that start? Well, I started becoming interested in society and things that went on in, uh, in the early 70s. And right. I started reading and I became interested in economics. And then I thought, well, economics is not the primary. There are more deeper issues. And then I entered philosophy. I started reading philosophy and I came across Ayn Rand. And I started reading her and I was shocked by what I read <laughs> in her books because this couldn't be true. I started reading uh, her in 1973, I think, when I read The Fountainhead, yes. This is amazing. I mean, you grew up in a social democracy, yes. and this is the heyday of yes. Marxist-Leninism. Yes, yes. And you start reading Ayn Rand, yes. who defends capitalism yes. and egoism. Yes. I read The Fountainhead in Norwegian in 1973, I think, and then when I started at university in 1975, I saw her books in the bookstore at the University of Blindern. Really? Yes. And there were shocking titles like The Virtue of Selfishness and uh, <laughs> Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, and Eitler Shrugged. Yeah. So I started leafing through these books in the bookstore and I was shocked. How could this be true? This is quite the contrary to whatever I've heard in yeah. all my life. Yeah. But I bought the books and I read them one after one and I couldn't argue against them. Because they're the, the perspective they had on every important issue was so clear and distinct and I couldn't argue against it. So I had to, after a few years of reading her books, I had to, okay, I agree with this. So I can say that I started reading her in 1973 and I became an objectivist in 1984, I think. Right. So it was a 10-year period when I was reading her books, oh. trying to discuss her ideas with people who were in agreement with her and people who did not agree with her. And... After almost 10 years, I said, okay, she's right. Right. And since then, I've learned lots more about her philosophy and about other philosophers. I studied philosophy at the University of Oslo. Uh, I was a teacher. I taught philosophy for a few years. And I've been also writing on cultural issues, right. uh, philosophical subjects, and something close to economics and things like that. 
It's more about how ideas influence history and how ideas influence the culture. So it's more history of ideas. And uh, you called me a philosopher. I wouldn't say that. I say that I'm, I'm, I'm a writer interested in philosophical subjects. Right. Okay. 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 So um, how was the reaction then when you started to discuss Ayn Rand's ideas with, with people? Well, they didn't agree. Uh, but after a time, they were not interested in discussing with me anymore. And I didn't think that they had good arguments against the views that I had taken from her. Like what would they typically say? Well, they said, of course, the government has to run the schools and the hospitals. Like a given? Yes. And I said, well, what about if private, why can't private institutions and companies start hospitals and schools? And they were opposed to that. They couldn't accept that at all because... We have to have the so-called unit school, airnet school, as they say in Norwegian. Yeah. Everybody had to have the same kind of education. Right. But I thought, well, people are different. Perhaps they should have different, te- different, well, whatever, for yeah. different people. Right. Um, but they were opposed to that. Mm. So I didn't find many people that agreed with my viewpoints. But uh, that only made me more eager to discuss this and read and understand this. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, of course, when we talk about Ayn Rand, as you mentioned, uh, Kant is the name that comes up as... A, I thought of it just today, actually. Could you say that <laughs> in some way, if Kant hadn't existed, Rand wouldn't have a, 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 a sort of purpose? <laughs> <laughs> well... Um... I mean, I, I should preface this also by saying that that preparing for this conversation... I, uh, I, you know, which you know, we'll get to the Romantic Manifesto, which is sort of the, the peak of the whole whole uh, conversation. Uh, but then I read your article, the influence of Immanuel Kant, and <clears throat> it blew my mind because I have read the critique of judgment, and I've seen the the horrible effects of what he writes in real life. I see the connection there, but I hadn't fully understand the whole, uh, understood the whole context of the critical ju- judgment in this broader philosophy. So, uh, I mean, should we just start with literally the basics here? Of Metaphysics. Kant. Of Kant. Yeah. Yeah. So explain to us first, what is yeah. metaphysics? Yes, uh, let me first say that the article you mentioned, it was based on a lecture I gave in 1997. And I published a written version of it, and it's available on the internet in Norwegian. Yes, but people have learned Norwegian in order to learn read Ibsen in the original. So I don't know what people would say about that. But it's not available in English, unfortunately. Right. Okay. Kant, his philosophy. Well, he came from a religious family. That's one important point. And he also opposed the skepticism that Hume represented, David Hume, the English philosopher. Mm. So, uh, and uh, he lived at a time when religion was declining, Christianity was declining, and there was a surge of skepticism based on David Hume. Mm. So he wanted to combat that. So he did not want skepticism, and he wanted to resurrect and strengthen religion, Christianity. Mm. And... In order to do that, he created a very ingenious philosophy, a very ingenious philosophy. And the problem with it is it's completely wrong in every case, I would say. 
let's take metaphysics. Metaphysics is the part of philosophy that deals with what really exists, the reality, what's, what's fundamental about existence. And there you have questions like, does the law of cause and effect, is that valid? Does God exist? Um, is the reality that exists something that exists dependent, independent of us, or is it dependent on us, or on God's consciousness, for instance? Um, an Aristotelian will say that existence exists independent of us, and Rand is an Aristotelian, by the way. Mm. Uh, but Kant says that we can't really know anything about really exist. We can only know what it looks like for us. We cannot know, as, as the German formulation, we cannot know ding an sich. We mm. cannot know th how things really are. We can itself. only know how th things look for us, ding für mich. We cannot know how reality really is. We can only know how it looks for us. So what he's saying is that that objective reality is unknowable. Yes. How does he argue that point? Why is it unknowable? Well, uh, then we have to go into epistemology. And he says that the, our senses, our sight and hearing and so on, they so, may sort of distort reality. So we do not see reality as it really is. We only see it as it appears to us. Mm. But then he presupposes that we can go outside our senses and compare reality, which we don't have a um, connection to via the senses, with how it looks through the senses. But that's impossible. Mm. We cannot come outside our senses. Our senses is the only contact we have with reality. So uh, in metaphysics and uh, this epistemology about the validity of the senses, it's better to say that there is an object out there, we observe it, and the observation we have is a product of the object and our sense apparatus. But our sense apparatus is given by nature. We cannot influence that. So you can say that we experience reality in one way, but that does not make it invalid, as was the implication of Kant's view. Mm -hmm. But uh, if we go to more epistemology, so an Aristotelian would say that reason is the only way to achieve abstract knowledge. The senses are... And this is Ayn Rand yes, now, yeah. yes, the Aristotelian view. Mm. The senses are valid and we can only acquire abstract knowledge through reason. Mm. And reason is the only reason way. Reason is our contact with reality. Yes, so the senses are contact with reality, but we can make abstractions. Right. And we do reason. We use reason to get to create abstractions. But abstraction has to be connected to reality, based upon reality. And an Aristotelian, including Ayn Rand, will say that reason is our only path to knowledge, abstract mm. knowledge. Mm. But Kant says, and he has to do this in order to make Christianity possible, he has said reason is limited. I have to deny reason and make room for faith in addition right. to reason. There are some areas, he says, where reason is silent and where reason is silent we have to use other means of knowledge and this intuition, faith and things like that, emotions, intuitions, things like that. So, so then you've described the two main differences between Kant and Ayn Rand. Are we able to understand reality, reach reality, or are we not? Kant says not, Ayn Rand says we can. And I just want to be clear about why it is so important to talk about this, is that all of this thinking influences the way we, for example, paint, or write, or sculpt, 
or do all of these things. Yes, yes. The basic philosophical premises. Yes. And what struck me when I've you know, read the critique of judgment, I uh, read your article and I see the, the continuation of his thought ending up in the critique of judgment. So if there's no objective reality, we cannot know reality. That is connected to what he says in the critique of judgment, where he clearly states that if you know what you are doing, then you are not creating yes. art. And if we cannot know reality, we cannot know anything. Right, exactly. Yes, yes. So that's why you get that situation today where people say you cannot learn art. Yes, yes. Because empiricism has been yes. completely discredited. Yes. Right? And this leads to subjectivism where people say, well, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Yeah. And, and this is also what, what uh, Munch says, what was the example? I think he talks about how, oh, these people don't understand that the, that the sky can be experienced as green. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that's the Kantian. Yes, yes. I mean, I want to emphasize this, that these are so great abstract ideas, but they have specific consequences in life. Yes, yes, they have. And, that, and they are yes, they really have. quite detriment, detrimental, yes, the Kantian yes, ideas. Yes. Because if people base themselves upon reason, they can argue and come to agreement or disagree. If they leave reason outside, then how should you deal with other people? And Ayn Rand has written an article, Faith and Force. If you base yourself upon faith, you cannot convince another person, right. my faith should be your faith. I can give you a logical argument. Logic and reason is more or less the same thing. But if you leave reason outside, you have to have faith and my faith and your faith. Well, how do we agree? Well, and we know that religions have been fighting each other. Religious war is a well-known concept. Mm. Mm. And this is what Ayn Rand then argues against. Yes. To only reason. Reason is oh. the only way to abstract knowledge. Right. And we can't trust our senses. And we can't trust our senses. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's so, there's so many, many implications of this. I mean, yes. I, there's a bunch yes. of case studies I wanted to, to sort of throw in your lap here. Okay. okay. Um, one thing is, this is, it was a wonderful trip I did with Odd Nordrum and a couple of others. We come to Rotterdam. We're going to see a wonderful uh, portrait of the, the Apostle Lucas by Rembrandt. So the painting is not there. And it turns out that Odnodrum had seen it there several times. First time, it was hanging very beautifully. After the second time, the Rembrandt research project had discredited it. It wasn't Rembrandt anymore. So it was just hanging on a normal wall. Okay, okay. And now it was gone. There was no postcards there, nothing, because the signature was invalid suddenly. Okay. And then it struck me, I started laughing afterwards, and I said, said to him, well, this ironically proves somehow that Kant was right because people, you mentioned the thing and the thing in itself. They were not able to see the quality of the painting because they think that actual reality is yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. It's not in front yeah, of us. Yeah. But they were standing with a masterpiece right in front yeah. of them and they yeah. couldn't see it. Okay. <laughs> you say, I mean, I mean yeah. isn't yeah. this a consequence of that thing and sich thinking yes. Of, yes. from Kant? Yes, that I think so. The, 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 the objective world yeah. It's just something yeah. inferior, yeah. or we can't know it. No, can't know it, no. No. Yeah. Yes. I and agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he, when he says that there's no uh, objective reality, you talked about, he had mentioned uh, denying knowledge or denying reason uh, for the sake of faith. Yes. He writes and, that in the introduction to critique of pure judgment. Right, right, right. And... 
Excuse me, critical purism. Right, 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 yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, that seems to me like a perfect defense of conceptual art. Because if there's if there's no if there's no uh, uh, objective qualities, empirical qualities, then we're talking about the concept, the idea behind it, because the actual execution of the work is completely irrelevant, right? And I guess Ayn Rand would strongly disagree with with that viewpoint. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, as for modern art, if you can say something about that, uh, Ayn Rand did not call those people who create modern art artists. She called them perpetrators. Right. Because what they create is not art. Mm. It's just, well, in the best case, it's decorations. And she put them in two categories, the Jackson Pollock kind and the Mondriani kind. The Jackson Pollock kind she called messy and the Mondriani kind she called neat. Neat. Neat okay. and messy. Oh, That's the two categories called so-called modern oh, art. Okay, okay. Neat and messy. <laughs> And so what Ayn Rand tries to do then is to restore respect of knowledge. Yes, yes. Real knowledge became based on observation and logical analysis of what we have observed. And reason is the only way to knowledge. There's no knowledge that is not based upon reality, the senses and reason. Right. If you claim something is knowledge which is not based upon these sources, it's not knowledge at all. In, in your article and the influence of Immanuel Kant, <clears throat> you emphasize very strongly that he does not use any examples and even say, he even says that examples are not serious as a basis for philosophy. Yes. Yeah. And I think this has you know, strong implications for, for my field. I mean, obviously for a lot of other fields too, but I, I speak from, from my yeah. vantage point here. Yeah. Um, if there are no examples, then you do not cannot compare yourself to anything, and then you get this lack of a hierarchy yeah. of quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, uh, in in the critical judgment, I see this thread from cons consistently not using examples to how he in in the critique of judgment says that if you are should be a genius, you shouldn't learn from anyone because that's mechanical work. That's just something you can sort of do. You, 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 if you know A, B, C, you get the yeah. FNs or so. And that cannot be the work of a genius. <laughs> so uh, I think one of the major problems with the impact of, of Kant's philosophy in what is, I mean, I don't call it art, but, uh, but that's, that's Iran's terminology now. Mm. Uh, uh, the, the main problem is that people think they should not be in contact with other people who can teach them anything or that they should could can do it but mm -hmm. but sort of keep a distance keep a distance mm -hmm. you know you have yeah. because you have to keep your originality yeah. yes, yes, yes. and of course my or classical figurative painting is based on that you study earlier examples yes you yes. learn from yes. them and you try yes. to bring them into yeah. hopefully a better yeah. product yeah. right yeah. yeah that's so strange that within painting, I see it so often that people want to learn this classical yeah. Greek, basically, yes. yeah. way of, of thinking. Yeah. But they think like Kant. Yes. <laughs> you see? 
Yes, calm. And it's a complete yeah. short yeah. circuit. It's yes, the fundamental Kantian ideas are everywhere. Yeah. They are everywhere. They they saturate every field. Yeah. Every field. Even people, academics, philosophers who think they are Aristotelian are really Kantians. If they have the idea, oh, we can't know reality as it really is, then they're yeah. Kantian. If you think we have to do our duty, you're a Kantian. If you think uh, egoism is outside of morality, you're a Kantian. Mm. If you think that morality really is an enemy and you should not, well, you have to have some fun on the side and, well, you should be moral, at least say that you're moral. Uh, there was one guy I heard on the radio several years ago. He talk, talked about a Norwegian, well-known Norwegian writer. And this guy said, so and so, this writer was a very moral person, moral, very moral person. But morality has nothing with how you live to do. Has nothing. Yes, he said that. I heard him say it. I can say who the two people were, but I won't say that on the tape. So yeah. this guy said, so and so was a very moral person, but he was a bastard in his way of life, how he treated other people. And he said, morality has nothing to do with how you live your life. Yeah. And that's Kantian. So Kant is everywhere. And even people who have never heard of Kant who think they're not Kantian are Kantian. Yeah. So Kant is everywhere. The only major figure is not Kantian, is Ayn Rand. Right. Well, that's why, one of the reasons why people look down on her and why she has this difficulty in getting through mm. to be regarded as a serious philosopher because she does not share the Kantian basic standpoint. Mm. She's completely non-Kantian. And in a field where Kant, in a culture where Kant rules everything, of course, it's difficult to get on the inside. Yeah. What does Ayn Rand do to rectify the influence of Mr. Kant? Um, Ayn Rand was a system builder. She created a whole system of philosophy. And she talked about all the major branches of philosophy, which are metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, aesthetics, and politics. And she gives a complete philosophical validation for major viewpoints and standpoints in all these branches. Right. So she rescues metaphysics on an Aristotelian basis. She bases an, her epistemology on the senses and reason alone. No openings for faith or intuition or revelation and stuff like that. She has a pure egoistic ethics. You have one life, live it well by being honest and productive and do not initiate force. She has a politics which uh, recommends pure unregulated capitalism. The government should do only the police and the courts and nothing else. A military of course and nothing else. Not the hospitals or the roads or the schools and stuff like that. And in aesthetics she says important things about what works of art are and what they do and what they should do. So she has a complete philosophy with major advances in all branches of philosophy. Mm. So especially and I think her she is most original maybe in aesthetics maybe because that reality exists independent of anyone's consciousness that's sort of well, common sense. That reason is the only road to abstract knowledge is sort of, okay, common sense. That the free market, capitalism, 
provides prosperity, that's common sense. And um, egoism, well, that's been sort of talked about in ancient Greece. But her view on art is completely new. I don't know anyone who has said so many important insightful things about art and what art is and what art does than she has. Mm. And this is this wonderful little book, The Romantic Manifesto, which was published 50 years ago this year. Right. Right. And that, I have to say, I, uh, I did start it a couple of years ago and I really couldn't grasp it. But now that we decided to do, to do this conversation, it was really amazing to read. Um, okay, so, so to, to contrast it, what I see as the big problem with Kant is that uh, through his concept of aesthetical indifference, he denies uh, our psychological needs to have our experiences externalized, and he denies the human condition because anything that is sentimental is barbaric, has no place in yeah. art. Yeah. It's a completely altruist uh, uh, perspective. But Ayn Rand brings that back, right? So when we get to the, to the um, Romantic Manifesto, first of all, why does she use the term romantic? Well, um, there was a period in uh, on the 19th century where you had lots of writers who were called romantic. It was from, let's say, 1820 to 1890 or something like that, mm. where many authors who were called romantic. So then it was a period in history and it was, uh, uh, it was the later come naturalism. And uh, so there was a, was a period and um, she defines this school of writing more fundamental than other writers who have called it as a, it's, it's works that puts weight on the emotions, the emotional state of the characters. But she goes more fundamental and says that, well, it's a kind of literature where the focus is on that the characters have free will. Right. Free this is when she mentions uh, volition. Volition. Yes, volition, yeah. volition. Volition, free will, yes. Uh, because uh, emotions, you have emotions, I have emotions, but they are a result of previous thinking we have done. Yeah. Emotions are not given by nature. Emotions are results of earlier thinking. But right. thinking is what you do yourself. You choose to think. So if, let's say... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I get no, so no. eager. Okay. Uh, it's, so, um, it, because it, it's today, it's, it's normal to think, oh, if you really feel it, then yeah. it must be right. But if that is no. based on perverted or sick or, yes, or exactly. wrong values, exactly. then... Let's take an obvious example. Let's say that you are Swedish and I'm Norwegian and uh, there's a football match between Sweden and Norway. Norway wins, of course. Nor the Norwegian is happy, you are sad. We have different emotions based on the same fact. Right. right because right. we have previous thinking that is different. You right. are supporting the Swedish team, I'm supporting the Norwegian team. Right. So you think, you, have, uh, you choose values, and when these values are experience reality, oh yes, this is good, this, you feel joy and happiness. 
and if they lead to failure, you feel sadness and despair. So these romantic writers, they did not focus on the chooses, not in the way they talked about their craft, their, their books, or their literary critics did not focus on that. But Ayn Rand goes deeper, she said. The fundamental is people have volition. Yeah. So in these kinds of novels, people think, they choose, and they experience triumph or despair or negative results of what they do. And they experience emotions. The earlier critics focused on emotion. Ayn goes deeper and focuses on volition. So she says that romantic literature is a literature where, which focuses on volition. And this is where she talks about how uh, literature then should not be didactic, but it gives you somehow a moral yes. ideal or, or yes. something to stretch for. Uh, and, and a novel, uh, this book is called The Romantic Manifesto, and the subtitle is A Philosophy of Literature. Right. So it's primi- primarily talking about literature. Right, right. Um, uh, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> now, uh, I mean, when we're talking about, uh, about uh, romanticism, yes. she says that it's, it shouldn't be no, yes, didactic. Yes, I remember. Yes, yes. She says that a writer should show, not tell. She should right. show how things goes with the person she, he or she creates. Right. She did not tell you, that, oh, he did that because of that and that you, you, the reader, should learn so and so. You should just show. Uh, a work of art is an object of contemplation. You should look at it, read it if it's a book, enjoy it if it's a play, look, listen to it if it's a piece of music, and you should enjoy it. Yeah. It's a, an object of contemplation. And what the artist has done, that he has a fundamental philosophy and he has created this work of art on the basis of his philosophy. So there's a philosophy in the work. The artist has a philosophy and she goes a bit into something called sense of life, which I can say something about a little bit later if you want me to. But there's a philosophy from the artist which he puts into the work. And when you look at the work, read a book, experience music, listen to music, see a painting or sculpture, that philosophy in that artwork speaks to you. So if it's the sa- more or less the same philosophy as you have, you like the work. If it's a different philosophy, you might not like it. Oh. I know like is a, not the right word to use here, but I get, think people get the impression of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Let's say something you see, Scream by Edward Munch. I would say that that's a great painting. It's very skillfully done and things like that, but it's not my philosophy. Right. That is a person, if, if you can call that figure a person, who is living in, in anguish and despair and is, thinks the world is a terrible place. And if you think the world is a terrible place, ah, you think that's my kind of painting. I like that painting. I don't like that painting, even if I can tell you, say it's skillfully done, right. uh, because it speaks in a way that doesn't connect to me. So when you evaluate a painting, you have to make it, or an artwork or a novel or whatever. There's a difference between what is the work trying to say and how well does it say it. That's a moral evaluation versus an aesthetic evaluation. And I would say that the aesthetic evaluation, my evaluation of Scream, is that it's a good painting. But the moral evaluation, this is a word I don't recognize at all. This is not my world. But other people can have the opposite reaction. They can say, oh, this is how I see the world. So when you paint something, you paint, this is how I view the world. This is my worldview that is in the painting. And this seems very contrary to Kant again. Yes, of course. In the sense that 
that um, for example, I guess it's Hume of the standard of taste. He also talks about a certain kind of indifference, but it's a completely different indifference. Different uh, because he says that you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, dislike a painting because you dislike the painter, for example, S something to that, yeah, that effect. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's not kind of, but that is what Kant does. He says if you it doesn't matter how skilled you are, if you paint something which is uh, pathetic in the true sense of the word, then it's bad. It yeah. doesn't take into consideration if it's successful exactly, in being exactly, sentimental exactly, or exactly. in being dramatic. Exactly. He says, do, thou shalt not yeah. do that. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and, and Rand tries to bring back that that point from whom, or, or at least yes, a similar yeah. point yeah. that you, I mean, tell us what she says about Hugo and that, uh, Victor Hugo, the, the novelist in that uh, regard. Oh. She, I mean, she, it's her Yeah, her favorite f writer is Victor Hugo. Yeah. And uh, if I can say, broaden a bit here, uh, the most respected and admired author in the world today is William Shakespeare. Right. He was a bit earlier than Hugo. He was an Englishman who died in, I think, 1616. And he's very popular today. He's played on stages all over the world. And he is a nihilist. Shakespeare is a nihilist. In his place, there's no connection between how good and moral the persons are and how well they, how their fate will turn out during the play. Uh -huh. So you can have a good person, it goes bad with the, the person. You can have a bad person, it goes bad. Or also the opposite. You can have a good person that gets killed and a bad person that survives and becomes happy. Some people would then say that, well, isn't that, uh, couldn't that be just a description of how things basically no. are? Well, yes and no. But uh, there's a line in Hamlet where Shakespeare said, okay, you shouldn't take the author as a spokesperson for the person in the play. But in Hamlet, one person say, we can't have justice because then everybody has to be flogged. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, but the person next, uh, Shakespeare's a nihilist, and that's why he's so popular today, because we have a nihilistic culture. But the person who is the second most admired writer after Shakespeare, that's Victor Hugo. Yeah. And he is completely different. He's a very moral person. You can see that his books, uh, Notre Dame, uh, Les Miserables, Toilers of the Sea, there are good people who more or less, well, not quite, but succeed, but they are good, decent people who do the right thing. Mm. And they often succeed. Okay, there's some problem with him because he had a Christian altruistic, altruistic ethics, so he can't write his books as good as he should. Right. But but you have good, strong characters and they do the right thing. And he's completely opposite of Shakespeare. Uh, the one writer who writes books where there are good people who have good results, that's of course Ayn Rand. Mm. Because uh, if you read I, The Fountainhead, they have a person who is rational, has integrity and is independent and he succeeds in the end of the novel. But, uh, but he goes through a fight. He goes through a fight, yes, yeah. because uh, it's not a pretty it, would, picture. it would have been a boring novel if there hadn't been a fight. So you have to yeah. combat some obstacles. Yeah. But you can notice there are a Nietzschean friend, villain, Gail Wynand, in the book. And you have this conformist, uh, Peter Keating. And you have the socialist intellectual critic, Ellsworth Toohey, who tries to fight Rourke. But Rourke, who has the right philosophy, he wins in the end. And this is then coming back to Rand's point of how uh, 
a work of literature, a painting, how does she describe it? It's it keeps in it makes you keep in mind the goal or how life could be or yes. should be, right? Yes, she takes a point from Aristotle that uh, uh, fiction is more important than history because history tells us how things were, but fiction tells us thing how things should be and ought to be. Yeah. And that's a point from Aristotle. Although she has regarded it as a quote from Aristotle, but not a direct quote from Aristotle. But that yeah. point is in Aristotle. Right. So, uh, but if you read, if you enjoy books like, uh, or plays like Waiting for Godot and stuff like that, you don't get very happy. But there are some people who have the same philosophy as you yeah. find in that, in that play. And they think it's fine. But if you and I saw that, I would say, oh, by, by, this is scoring. This is by God. This is hell. They're waiting for this girl who never showed up. Right, right. God, oh, God never comes, you know. Okay. Well, uh, so, but uh, we need art. We need works of art because every human being has a philosophy, sort of. And, but the philosophy is a big abstract thing. And we need something that can keep this philosophy as a, as a, as an object almost. Yeah. So therefore, we have to have art I mean, because it, it, it concretizes philosophy. It keeps our philosophy alive. So right. we have to contemplate art because it keeps our philosophy alive. Without art, we couldn't keep our philosophies alive. And that's why if Hegel says, maybe we'll come to a society where people no longer will need art, that's complete BS. Well, he talks about that, that politics takes over completely so and that you can recognize that yeah. in the current situation man but, has a need for <laughs> art he must have art but I, I so the point is that that this becomes how does she say it concretization of metaphysical abstractions uh, you think her definition of art yeah art is a selective recreation of reality in accordance with the artist's metaphysical value judgments now what does that mean yes <laughs> Okay, well, uh, art is a selection, uh, a selective recreation of reality. Stop. Start that. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I was going to stop there. <laughs> so, so here's where I, yes. in a very pedagogical yes, manner, interject fine. that. Yes, <clears throat> I was going to stop there. Yes. <laughs> she. A selective recreation of reality. Yeah. Okay. So she rejects. I mean, uh, she, uh, that was an amazing thing reading the Romantic Manifesto again. I had some idea of where she was going, but it it um, it blew my mind also to read how she she emphasizes the eternal perspective. That's where you need to go, not the journalistic reproduction, not naturalism, but eternal principles. And that's when I said, "Baby, I'm yours." This is. <laughs> Okay. Uh, sele so. Selective recreation of reality. Let's take a uh, painting. Mm. And let's say you paint something you have seen in reality. You paint a building or a human or an animal or a landscape or whatever. You have seen it in reality. But when you paint it, you select the things that are important to you. You select a specific right. landscape, a specific person with specific qualities. Or you select some sort of fruit, an apple, an orange, and things like that. Or a vase. Things you see in reality. But you paint it. And you paint it in a special way. Yeah. You take something that is in reality and you choose some aspects of it and put it in your painting. 
And then they become even more important. Yes, yeah. because it's important because you include it in the painting. Doesn't she say something about, about compre yeah. compressing the whole universe in yes. one? Yes, yes, yes. yes. But uh, I, I want to go in another direction. Um, uh, but what you paint in a painting has to be something you have seen in reality. Yeah. If you take this non-figurative so-called artist, what they do is not selective recreation of reality. Mm. It's just squiggles and lines. Well, it's and according color. to the Kantian idea that this is my experience of reality. And this. Well, you show it to me. Mm. You well, you, well <laughs> yes, that, that, yes. that's the thing with yes. the Kantian idea that you cannot yeah. show it because well, you know, that's empiricism. Again. Yes, but reality, yeah. what is yeah. Kant's view on reality? What is? What is Kant's view on reality? That you cannot reach it. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay, uh, selective recreation of reality according to the artist's metaphysical value judgment. That was the second part. Okay, um, metaphysical is about the fundamental view of reality, the way reality really is the fundamental, most basic elements of reality. And uh, an artist or everybody has a view of what is what is really real? How is really? What is reality really look like? What is it? Is it, for instance, is it possible to achieve happiness? Should I obey my parents or should I go on my own? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I follow my own wishes? Should I listen to what my uncle says? Should I do what the state says uncritically? Everybody has an opinion on matters like this, and this is most basic questions. Is, does God exist? Does is it possible to achieve happiness in reality? These are metaphysical questions. Do I have the right to think for myself? Yes, exactly. Things like that. And what an author or a painter does is it includes these things in his paintings mm. in order to show that if he includes this in his work, these are important things to me and this is what I think is important. And you, as the reader or the person who looks at the painting, should consider these things. And if you, the person who views the painting, has the same values, also, this painting speaks to me, or this is completely different as me and monks scream, okay, well, it's a good painting, but it doesn't speak to me because I don't have those kind of values. Hmm. Now, you've, you've mentioned the term sense of life, and I think that's such a beautiful term. Um, <clears throat> and I think, and this is also why we have this uh, Greek Hellenistic uh, figure here, because I, I think it's a really good illustration of the view of man that, that uh, Ayn Rand wants to uh, see more of, right? I think, so is this how you would like to be, like, like uh, Jean Marjan to be, of Le, Le Miserable? Well, yes, sort of. It's pretty close. As a young Jean Valjean, yes. <laughs> but he looks more like a Greek yeah. god than a French uh, businessman. And prisoner. Right, right. Yeah. No, I mean, this, <laughs> this self-confidence yes, stature, yes, but not, not yes. um, sort of patronizing, but I know I'm yeah. good and I will treat you with respect. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of hero yes. Ayn Rand uh, is after. Yes, yes. Right. And how does that... How does that play in then with with uh, rationality? Because she says this is a major thing also. Yes. Volition, rationality yes. are fundamental basics in romantic yes. literature. Well, if you are rational, you evaluate all the relevant facts and you put them in a value hierarchy. 
Right. But this, you, this is the author thinking now, or well, yes, well, uh, that is what rationality implies. Right. You know all the facts. That is, you're not, uh, you don't know everything, of course, but you have access to facts. You evaluate facts and you act according with your evaluations. But if you have, if you're not rational, you must say that okay, well, there may be things that I cannot observe, that I cannot experience, things that might happen without anyone knowing. God may do something to me in the next moment and therefore you cannot have confidence mm -hmm. if you have if you are rational you can have confidence because in the anything future. can because happen at any time. anything can happen at any moment right. but if you're rational you know that that won't happen but how does this affect to stick to literature then when she talks about rationality is that she is saying that the author needs to base his whole work on a rational approach or does she talk about the the characters in in the novel, or well, both, I guess. I think that for a successful novel, the, the author should know the plot in advance before he starts writing. He should know how the, the plot develops because he has a point in writing the novel yeah. and he creates the characters and their interaction in order to illustrate some points. That's why he writes the novel. Right. So he has to be knowledgeable of all the facts that goes into the book. But he doesn't have to make all the persons rational. Right. For instance, if you say, if we use again the example Samuel Beckett waiting for God or Godot, these people are not rational. Right. This, they, Godot, they have never met him, they don't know if he went up there. The whole play is about these two guys waiting for this man who never shows up. Right. And is that an interesting play? Well, I don't think so. I've seen it, but it's not interesting. And so, so the fundamental importance for Ran is narrative. She wants to tell a good story, yes. And yeah. in order to do that, she has to create characters that are somewhat similar but somewhat different. And there must be conflicts between these characters. She thought that Henrik Ibsen was a very good plot creator. His right. plots in his plays are very good. Yeah, he's the only one who's specific living person that she mentions in any of her books or novels, I think. Uh, really? Yeah, no. she mentions, mentions Ibsen. That yes. Do you, are you saying she doesn't mention any other writers in any of her novels? I, as far as I know, I just, I just noticed that okay. she, suddenly she said Ibsen. In the novel? Yeah. Okay. It, it was in front, it, it, it's Tui. And this is going back to the whole uh, Kantian opposite okay, approach. Yeah, yeah. She, when, when, when Tui says, if I shall, uh, if I shall slander uh, or if I shall get Ibsen down, yeah. I don't slander yes, him. Yes. Okay. I talk yeah. good yeah. about some yes. other bad yes. author. Exactly. Right. Yes. yes. Um, she wanted her novels to be timeless. Yeah. Of course, The Fountainhead is set in the United States in the 20s and 30s. But she wa didn't want to make references to things that were specific at that time, so that if people read it 50 years later, they did not know what she was talking about. Right. But of course, a writer like Ibsen, he's timeless. So, of course, you can mention him. Yeah. And he's a good plot right. writer, very I good see. plot writer. And the plot in The Fountainhead, it's the best plot ever imagined. You have the integration between these five characters. Rourke is an architect. Keating is an architect. Two is an architect critic. Gail Winan is a newspaper magnate, capitalist, entrepreneur. And uh, Dominique is, well, she's in love, married to at least three of these people. But they all are brought together in the Courtland episode. 
Keating should draw it, but he couldn't do it. He gets help from Rourke. Um, uh, Gail Wynan uses his newspapers to help Rourke during the trial. And the man who's most attacking Rourke is Ellsworth Tui. And the one who helps with the explosion is Dominic. So they, this is a perfectly integrated plot. Mm. And it solves itself by Gail Wynan drawing back. Keating continuing as a failure. Uh, Dominic and Tui are Dominic and Rourke are married, and uh, Tui, who cannot live on his own, starts to be a critic in another newspaper. Mm. He must be must live on someone else. He's first right. a critic in one newspaper, and then one newspaper, and when that is closed, he goes to another newspaper. So he has to sponge off someone. Right. So the plot in the Fountain is fantastic. It's like a Swiss Swiss clock. It's exceptionally well crafted. And Ibsen was also a master craftsman in regards to plot. So. What's the difference between Romanticism and Naturalism? Um, romanticism, I said, focuses on that the persons have free will. They think, they choose, they have values and they f- try to follow and live their values. And they succeed or fail according to their values. In Naturalism, people don't have choice. They are just... Uh, pawn in the circumstances. Mm. What happens around them influences them in, in major ways and they don't choose and they, what their values are and what they choose they, has no effect on the outcome in the book. Well, doesn't you talk about naturalism as, as determinism? Yes, yes. yes. Also, to, to not have free will is to be, yeah. a, to, to, to regard people as not having free will is to be a determinist. Right. So this is, this is the opposite of yes. naturalism. Yes. Because it's not deterministic. No, because I, it, but uh, um, to talk about naturalism and, uh, uh, and determinism and free will, you have to have action. And action takes place over time. And in a painting, in a sculpture, you can only show a moment. So I'm not sure if you can talk about free will and determinism in regards well, I, to a I statue think you see it painting. in the whole... Posture yeah, of this maybe. figure, maybe. Um, I, I mean, okay, so, so so to contrast it, maybe it becomes clearer. I did send you some images. Yes, yes, yes. Before uh, to, to to give an idea. Of yes, you did. My context. You have, for example, uh, Lucian Freud. Yes. And there you have this completely passive, very Kantian. <laughs> Yes. In different figures just lying there. Yes, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, right. About. Yes. And if you contrast yes. that yes. with yes. what you're seeing yes. here, do you yes. understand what I'm saying? Yes, I did think about that. And if I, and this is my, I myself trying to think about that. How does that figure of these not very beautiful people illustrate determinism versus free will? If you see a statue like that, or Michelangelo's David, or something like that, you, people will think, wow. That was a beautiful person. I would try to be like him. I would try to be like him. I will do what is necessary to be that kind of man. But if you see those paintings you sent to me, nobody thinks, oh, I want to be like that. Nobody wants to be like uh, overweight and, uh, well, you know, just lying on the couch. Completely passive. Yes. So I think nobody wants to be like that. So if people become like that, as this painting show, they must have just, okay, I don't care with my life. I, it's not my choice. I just eat potato chips and watch TV and I'll be overweight and fat and ugly. Right, right. And that is why I don't think someone chooses to become overweight and fat and ugly just because 
they think, okay, well, I can't help it. This is what this fate has in store for me. So I just have to accept it. Right. Right. So and maybe that, those paintings in I a way can it, illustrate uh, determinism. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Because there's no, well, speaking of, of Rand's virtues, there's no pride there. No pride. At no all. ideal. No, and I think, I think this is a really, um, I mean, this, this is what I call depressionism. What she calls natural, I just call it depressionism, because it's everything is. I mean, this is a really clear-cut example of of <clears throat> of of Rand's point that that uh, what you do is not just some kind of indifferent painting. You you present some kind of an ethic, right? And when you look at these paintings, you think this is absolutely not what uh, what I want to be. This is what I want yes, to be, as, yes, as exactly. you just mentioned, yes, exactly. and. And um, I think one of the most problematic things, and this is the content aspect of this depressionistic uh, work, naturalist work, is that <clears throat> there's no threat there. There's no nothing going on, but something is wrong. You know, there's yeah. no drama. There's no uh, anything of, of that. There's no lust for life. No, no. Right. I think that's the basic yeah. uh, basic problem with this uh, the naturalist yeah. Uh, yeah. work, right? Yeah. There's no ideal. Uh, there's nothing to enjoy. Right. It's just some uh, horrible sight. She talks about how people would, and she almost uses the word kitsch, uh, uh, because a romantic romantic period is typically called you know sort of the kitsch period because of the emotions and all these things. Also in architecture, that which we'll get to, but she talks about that that romantic. I think she says just romantic art um, is criticized for being, a, you know, an escape from reality. But then she turns it so eloquently, and she says, given that this point that I hope we've, we've been able to convey that that um, to stick to literature that this or that book gives you an ideal to strive for. That gives you a sort of, let's say a recipe, to use a simple word, in how to tackle the challenges in real life and gives you the lust to tackle those challenges, right? Whereas the, the, the depressionistic things, the naturalist things, just says, well, just lie there and become yeah. fatter yeah. and fatter, yeah. right? And that was... An amazing thing how she so eloquently just turned it completely yeah. around. And that's the function to really hammer that point in. That's the function of a good no novel, well, and for that's example. One of the functions, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Right. So having said that, yeah. there are some things that I see as problems, and we'll see see what you can if you can prove me wrong here over how this goes. <laughs> uh, there's a couple of places where she gets really specific where it seems kind of strange. She talks about this one portrait with uh, of a, or I guess it is an imaginary portrait, of a woman standing in a red evening dress and she has a mouth sore. Yeah. And that, to me, if, if I should, yeah, well, be the devil's advocate, 
I would say that, well, what is going on here? Does she, does she only want boring society portraits where nothing ugly must enter, everything must be pretty and nice? I mean, it, it, doesn't that seem very strange considering her emphasis on narrative, on conflict earlier? No, you can paint all kinds of portraits. I think you can portray all kinds of eccentric and weird and even evil people. But as for the example you mentioned, it's a beautiful woman in a nice evening gown with a cold sore on her lip. In reality, a cold sore doesn't mean anything. But why has the artist included in the painting? I think that if an artist includes that, he's saying, oh, she's trying to look so nice, but she cannot fight reality. Reality destroys you no matter what you try to do. So it, I think that the cold sore included in a painting has an enormous significance because it is included. Uh, she defines art as a selective recreation of reality according to the artist's metaphysical value judgments. So because it's included, the artist must think this is important, this is significant. In reality, it's not worth mentioning at all. But, but to include it in a painting says something that that the values that this lady is trying to achieve is worthless or more or less worthless. And I think that's, well, I won't say evil. I think it's the bad thing for an artist to include that in the, in the painting. Well, it seems to me that she's reading too much into it. I don't I think mean, so. This is a, this is a, uh, this is an example she created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, and it's it's a, it's um, it seems like some kind of a yeah, well society portrait. But couldn't that mouth mouth sort uh, be a way of? I mean, couldn't that be the equivalent of the the conflict in a plot, a contrast? No, I don't think so. Plot is between persons, not between a person and nature. And this uh, cold sore is a disease, sort of. So I, I think that, uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying this correctly. If you have a man fighting nature, I'm not sure how exciting that is. Oh, it could be you could fight earthquakes or a devilfish, as the person in the Tigers of the Sea does. But a cold sore included? No, I, well, I, I, I don't think I so. Think, I guess the biggest problem I can see would be if there's if the portrait is boring, nothing is going on at all, and I think th think this whole naturalist approach is a much greater problem. Oh, there are lots of exciting portraits yeah. without cold sore on yeah. a person's mouth. Yeah. Lots of exciting portraits. I mean, and, and I think that would be a. I mean, so a boring portrait is a bigger problem than a really good portrait with, of a woman with a mouth sore, if the, port well, the portrait is good. Well, I would say that if, uh, I don't think the example I made is a portrait of a specific person. No, no, no. no. no it's, it's a because then you have to create the personality in the painting. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's uh, just, uh, it's example I is as, Ayn Rand described it, and I, I agree with her. If that kind of painting, if he included the cold sore, I think that would be bad from the artist's point of view. But I think she's, it seems to me that she she's not so much knowledgeable about painting. I mean, literature, she does know a lot. When it comes to painting, it seems that something goes wrong. Because if 
if you sh and should look at Rembrandt, for example, the, the, the um, Claudius Civilis painting, they're sitting there cons uh, conspiring against the Romans, and he has this one eye that has been, been uh, ruined. Yeah, but that's a point that, in the painting. Yeah, because th then they yeah. f they, he um, uh, sort of wins over, wins over that and still fights on. So that, that's a narrative yeah, uh, situation. Yes, yes. So, okay, so what about that? There's another example. She contrasts a Greek sculptor, well, with a medieval sculpture. Yes. Sculptor. Yes. And how the Greek sculptor yeah. elevates man through yeah, the yeah, posture and, yeah, and all yeah. of these things. Yeah. Whereas the, the medieval. Yeah. Sculptor would then see man as sort of crippled yeah, or yeah. whatever. Yes, and uh, because then the, the the sculptor has chosen to yeah. present man as yeah. such. Yeah. But then, what about Quasimodo? Yeah, but he's not the only person in the novel, and Hugo has created him because he wants to show that Esmeralda is unavailable to him. And it's the same trick as Rostan does in Cyrano. Cyrano has this big nose and therefore Roxanne cannot love him, he thinks. Mm. And I think, uh, but, but uh, Victor Hugo also created uh, extreme characters. And this gypsy girl and, uh, and Quasimodo. Well, there's, we talked earlier about you can have strange people, you can have people die and that, that, that you can have a deformed person in a book. Of course you can. So I don't think it's wrong to include a person like Quasimodo, and I don't think it's in con it's not in con I don't think it's in conflict with Ayn Rand's aesthetics to have such a person mm. in this book. But it seems to me that she's disregarding the execution, because you could make yeah. some hunchback, medieval hunchback, if there was an exceptional sculptor at the time yeah. with that. Yes look in his eyes that yeah. says yes. he wins over yes. being yes. a hunchback. Yes. yes, yes, But then that's not the example that Rand yes. uses yes. anymore. I would have loved Ayn Rand to have written a thousand pages more about aesthetics. And I yeah. guess she would have discussed these things you bring yeah. up. But I don't think th this point either is in, in contrast to Ayn Rand's view on art and how art should be. Mm -hmm. I think this is completely consistent with good work of art and you have deformed people in uh, other plays for instance Richard in a Shakespeare play is a hunchback and you have little, little Eyolf by Ibsen who is lame and uh, there, wa there was a period when there was normal in literary works to have people have a physical deformity to show that the personality was not quite good mm. So that happens, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And there's so nothing it, wrong with Quasimodo. If it has as a um, function in, yes. in the narrative. Yes, yes. Basically, that's yes. what you're yes. saying. Yes, But then she mentions Vermeer. And I think this is an example I really react to. Because uh, in essence, she's saying that he's a good painter because he uses pure color and clear lines. And that sort of equals a pure mind and clear thoughts, so to speak. Uh, and I think when she says, and, and, and she rejects or, or criticizes Rembrandt for blurring the outlines and for distortions, because that's sort of irrational or whatever. 
And I think that becomes very simplistic. I mean, almost a bit childish. Because, I mean, when it comes to clear line, and you have also Capuletti here, who was a favorite of, of uh, Ayn Rand's. And I think you could see not on the same quality. Obviously, Vermeer is a great painter. Don't misunderstand me. Yeah, Ayn Rand uh, described but, Vermeer as the greatest painter ever. Right. But the similarities would be then that Capuletti uses his very clear lines and really clear colors. Now, I think what she misses are some really fundamental issues. For example, this Rembrandt's blurring. This is a known uh, uh, technique to blurring outlines so that you don't get cut out figures so that you can, in painting, so that you can get three-dimensional form yeah, yeah. and then the figures become more alive and they can react to each other and you get a stronger narrative. Yeah. So she seems to completely fail to understand the, 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 the function of that yeah. technique. Well, yes, I would say I don't know much about painting, but I tend to agree with you. Right. Yeah, because it, 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 yeah. given... Yes, I understand. I, I think uh, you are right. Yeah, because given the, the, uh, her... And this, this really is the strength of Romantic Manifesto. Given her emphasis yeah. on narrative, yeah. the importance of plot, yeah. Yeah. logic, yeah. Ca causality, yeah. not casuality yeah. and <laughs> naturalism, uh, it's like she suddenly completely forgets that when it comes to painting. Yes, I wouldn't use as strong language as you did, childish and things like that. But no, I, th I think your criticism is valid. Yeah. Yeah. So, you move on? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was boring. You didn't expect that, did no, you? No, no, no. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> no, uh, but, but okay, let's, let's pretend that we disagree. Uh, <laughs> because uh, my beef is that yeah. throughout history... Yeah. That the, the signifiers of really mediocre painters also is clear lines yes, and yes. strong colors. Yes, yes. Because it becomes yes. almost Kantian, you know, it becomes paint yes. on canvas, objects or, or you know, detached yes. objects yes. put together on the canvas, like with Capoletti here. I mean, I, I, I think this, I mean, obviously, compared to Matisse, this yeah, is yeah. much better, but compared to yes, Vermeer or yes. Rembrandt, it's. Yes, I agree with you. It's strong. I agree with big you. Big problem here. I agree with you. And, and that's why I, what I think is so strange that suddenly she's sort of. I'm using simplistic language here, but yeah. suddenly she, she falls completely into the Kantian aesthetical indifference. Because there's no action yeah. here. There's no logic. There's no causality. No. There's no action. There's nothing yes. going on. Yes. I wish I know, knew more about painting, but uh, I tend to agree with your points. Right. Yes. There is a problem also, I think, with her view on architecture. I mean, we're obviously talking about the, the Fountainhead with Howard Rourke. And what I... Okay, so let me present the case for Howard Rourke as the perfect Kantian, Kantigillian uh, poster boy here. So he is, he talks, I think, I might be wrong, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But as, as far as I remember, he talks about creating out of himself. It sounds very Kantian that the genius gets things out of himself. Whoa. He doesn't get, wait a minute, he doesn't... <laughs> 
<laughs> now I see you're, you're, you're reacting here. He doesn't get the input from outside, but it comes from him. Now, second point, he is extremely concerned with originality. That he should not copy uh, older styles. You know, and uh, for example, you're know, re rejecting old formulas. Columns are completely meaningless because form follows function. And there is a Hegelian, strong Hegelian strain there in, in that he implicitly says that you have to follow your time. But what then about independence? Her well, one of her primary virtues. Okay. Okay, so. Well, follow, follow the time. Well, he, I think the point there is that you should use the technology and the materials available at your time and not imitate earlier constructions with newer materials. Well, this is Kant and Hegel. Well, in that case, they were right. It's not so that if Kant and Hegel says something, it's necessarily wrong. No, no, but, 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 but this ties back to the whole uh, thing where you... It's not that it's not... You know, that there's a difference. It's physically possible to, to uh, uh, emulate Greek architecture because you have stones, you have the tools, etc. It would be physically impossible to balance the sun on top of the earth. That would be physically impossible. So in the case of using Greek architecture as a model, if you can do that or not, is an ideological problem then. I mean, that, that's where I see Rourke as, as sort of involuntarily Kantian or Kant-Hegelian in that sense. You have to be original, you must not do what was done in earlier times. Well, as technology develops, you get new materials, new possibilities. Yeah. And to use those to copy things that were made 100 and 500 years earlier, what's the point of that? Well, what about judging the quality of the building yes, on its own terms? Yes, but if you terms? can create something new, why create something new? Why not create something new and good instead of copying things that were already done? Well, if you... How can you be origi original if you copy yeah, but, yeah, something? But, but that's, that's, that, that's the whole essence. Then that is an ideological standpoint, which is... I mean, this is the essence of the Kantian genius, that you have to be original. That is the, that is the uh, imperative. I mean, Kant doesn't, doesn't well, say... Well, okay, from a different perspective, if you are able... I've mentioned this bef before in other contexts. If you're able to create an exact copy of a Rembrandt painting, or a Vermeer in this case, then that is not just some, well, left-hand work. You need to know a hell of a lot of things to be able yes. to make that copy. Yeah. So being unoriginal demands really a lot of knowledge. Do you mean copy an existing painting so there are two copies of the painting available? You make an exact yes. similar painting. Why should the you exact, do that? Because no, the, the point is, if, you, if those two of the, are of the same quality, then they should deserve the same respect. Yeah. yeah. But she then seems to imply that, well, if this is of the same, same quality, no, it's not of the same quality after all, because it's been done before. And that's the Hegelian uh, zeitgeist and Kantian originality imperative. Do you see that point? Or? Well, you are saying, also, in a work of art, the artist puts his personality and his values into the artwork. 
and you are saying that the guy who copies Vermeer, then he must have the same personality and same, exactly the same values as Vermeer. Isn't that highly unlikely that two persons who have exactly the same value judgments, the well, same view of reality? Well, isn't, isn't that the point with, that Erin Rand makes with her novels, then, that this becomes an ideal to follow? And so people who have similar ideas, yes. this is what you've been talking about earlier, people who have similar uh, sense of life or metaphysics yes, similar, will but like... Similar, but not yeah. exactly the yeah. same. Yeah, but this is, this is an, I mean, of course, I doubt you would find someone make an exact copy of a mirror. But, it's, but that it, was your example, wasn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing that with Daconia, who says yeah. everything good comes from money. It's an exaggeration yeah. To, yeah. To, to make yeah. a point. Yeah. If you are able to judge the quality of yeah. the work yeah. independently yeah. and not think, well, it's been yeah. done before, that's completely yeah. irrelevant because you should be able to look at the quality of the actual work. Yes, yes. Right. And I would say if you can paint in Vermeer's style, that would be good. But exact copy of a Vermeer painting, I don't see the point But isn't that, that impressive? I mean, it, yes, it's impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so, but but what, you're, what you're interested in is not, oh, that was impressive. If you see a dog walking on his hind legs, that's also impressive. But so what? No, but I mean, if you have someone who is the world champion in skiing, whatever, yeah. and someone manages to, to, to run that distance in this exact same yeah. time, yeah. isn't that... Impressive. Yes. Doesn't that demand a lot of work? Isn't yes. that man yes. extremely fit? Yes. So, but, but, but would you would you then say, oh, he just ran, yeah. ran yes. the same time as the yes. world champion? But if I go to a museum and I see a real Vermeer, oh, that speaks to me. That's a philosophy and that's a, a object of contemplation for me. And then I go to another museum and see the copy, the exact copy. Well, I've seen that before. Why couldn't this guy have painted something different? Well, that sort of implies that if you see the same painting once more, then it's uh, pointless because you've seen it before. I mean, what if these two paintings were interchanged then? And you saw the copy first, yeah, and yeah. You, it says Vermeer under. Yeah. Because, but because it's of the same quality, yeah, yeah. then yes. you don't think that, oh, this is a copy of Vermeer. No. We talked about yeah. the Rembrandt that was moved earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 In, in Rotterdam. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So, but, but, I mean, is, isn't that an exact illustration of the Kantian paradigm where because it says that reality doesn't exist you or, or the, the, this this thing in itself is something that we cannot know mm-hmm. and so people as 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 um, fulfilling his prophecy so to speak don't see the actual quality of that vermeer copy well, i think the point that you're making a copy is I don't think that is as well taken as your previous point where I agreed with you. Mm-hmm. To create a copy of a painting, I, I don't see the point of that at all. And to make a copy of a building or a, a column, uh, why should you create a copy? It's impressive, but so what? It doesn't say something more than the original painting. If you have a Vermeer, it says something, and another guy creates the same painting, identical painting of the same quality. It doesn't say anything else. Why should he say the same thing as Vermeer has said with his original painting? Yeah, but the accomplishment. Yes, isn't but, that amazing? Yes, but so what? There are lots An of amazing accom- accomplishment is irrelevant. No, but that's what no. That you admire the painting. Yeah, yeah. Not the accomplishment behind it. Yeah, well, it has. It lies in the painting, right? All the knowledge lies in the well, painting. Well, the painting speaks to me because of the way it looks, because of yeah, the composition way it was and things like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. 
but but the, I'm sorry, but I don't see your point here. Right. <laughs> I guess what I find uh, problematic with her view of architecture is that it becomes at a certain point, or not at a certain point, that it becomes, it seems to be a bit subjective in the sense that, that um, I mean, she talks about, uh, uh, you know, the contrasting, um, or she, she talks about these cathedrals that make people feel small. But at the same time, she admired these skyscrapers. And it seems that, that uh, she looks at the symbol behind the building, not the, the quality of the building itself, because this symbolizes capitalism that, that she defended. And I agree with that. Uh, uh, because it symbolizes that, then the building is good. And again, it seems, this is my point, that she doesn't look at the actual quality of the the actual well, building the ins- or the work. The inside of a skyscraper is completely different from the inside of a cathedral. In the cathedral, in the cathedral there's just room up to the top. Yeah. But in the skyscraper there are many levels, many floors. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can say it's an achievement to build both. But the point of the cathedral is to make the man feel small and insignificant. And that is not the point of a, of a skyscraper. Both represent achievements, but the skyscraper is not intended to show how small man, man is, but that is the point of a cathedral. But let me say something about architecture, yep. because we all listen to music, we all read books, we all see plays, and like so we all engage with artworks. But not all the time. But buildings, we are in buildings all the time. We are between buildings all the time, except when we are in untouched nature. So therefore, maybe architecture is the most important art there is, because it influences us so much. Mm. And imagine uh, the cathedral. You are small when you're inside it. The point of an architect is that he creates a world you live in, a world you should live, work, and do the other things you enjoy doing. And, and a sculpture or painting creates a small surface, a small figure. But a, a building, a house, is a world that surrounds you. And you are in the house all the time. So architecture is an extremely important art. Mm-hmm. And imagine, you can see those uh, grotesque, great buildings in uh, Moscow or, or Russia. This, uh, Norwegian Kaker Slot or whatever they call it. Like big cakes. Yes, big cakes. Horrible constructions. And and this communist dictatorship, they are building larger cities. There's a point to that. They should make humans feel small. And you don't see anything like that in the free or capitalistic countries. Yeah, but what if you, like, well, what if you came from Mars, you know nothing about life on Earth, and you just see the building without knowing what it's supposed to represent? Yeah. Is, uh, that's my point all the time. Isn't she missing that point to see, okay, well, if you are able to separate your, um, uh, well, your personal advers- uh, aversion to communism, for example, if you put that aside and just look at the quality of the building, if it has qualities or not, yeah. isn't she missing that point? No, I would say that uh, if a Martian came here, he would see, oh, we have these humans 
running around and they go into sort of constru constructions and some of them fit the humans and some don't. And the, the Martian would think that those constructions that fit the human would be better than the constructions that don't fit him. Uh, man is about two meters tall or something like that. So a room should be four, three, four, five meters. It shouldn't be 200 meters or 100 meters as in a cathedral. It doesn't fit. It has a message. The cathedral has a message. You say, you are small and insignificant. But what about the, her... Of course, she talks about um, literature in Romantic Manifesto, but what about her idea that things has to be larger than life? Doesn't that apply to architecture? Yes, but not so large as a cathedral. When there's a space, well, can, you, can you say that peop that raises people? That I mean, when I look at Greek architecture, yeah, if, that if it, that to me is an amazing thing yes, with these columns, yes. and and that's yes. the thing. Yeah. The, the, this type of architecture is based on the human proportions, yes, exactly. So that you exactly. recognize that's the point. Yeah, but yes. then why it should be? I mean, in, in the same way that Ayn Rand. As far as I understood, in it's been said about her, or if she said it herself, take takes Aristotle and sort of clarifies him, improves yes, yes, him. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Couldn't Rourke do that with the Greek architecture? And combine, we talked about this in the, the Polish team. Yes. Uh, to to combine, uh, you know, <clears throat> well, uh, Pantheon with Palazzo Vecchio yes, or whatever, yes, and yes. and create an even better classical architecture. Yes. Uh, maybe an architect who based his work on the objectivist theory of architecture could do that. I don't think Rourke could do that. Rourke is a person who acts in the fountainhead and he has certain personal views on how architecture should be done, how buildings should be. And he constructs buildings in, in the way he wants them to be. They're expressions of his personality. Another architect basing on the same objectivist theory of architecture, would have another personality and who would, he would construct other kinds of buildings. There's no, no contradiction there. But, but, but isn't there though, because I mean, if Ayn Rand should think like that as a writer, I have to express my personality. Yeah. Well, that is of no help if the logical structure between the figures doesn't work. Yes. I mean, she has to take, an, uh, yes. take yeah. that into con yes. consideration. That yes. comes in yes. as something that she has to relate to and not yes. just think that I, I want to, to express myself in, so, uh, in this or that way. Well, she described her books as these are the people I want to have as friends. So these are right. people I want to meet. This is right. I will have social intercourse. Yeah, you don't want to meet with. the people in Dostoevsky's house. <laughs> no, no, you don't want to meet them. And of course, you would like to meet Jean Valjean, and he's larger than life, but he's not 20 meters tall. No, no, well, <laughs> of course. No. Obviously. So, so you can have lots of different architects with different personalities that construct totally different buildings, and that's, they're all consistent with the objective yeah. theory of architecture. So, this drawing here is yeah. the cottage studio yes. by Fra Frank Lloyd Wright yes. that he made for yes. Ayn Rand. Yes, they knew each uh, other slightly, and uh, Ayn Rand admired him, and she and he admired her. And he said about the fountainhead that you tell the truth, and you'll be probably burnt at the stake <laughs> as a witch. <laughs> well, no, that was uh, okay, but that was, that was insightful. Okay, uh, <laughs> um, now. What I'm I'm thinking about, my my beef then with with Rand on on architecture is that, as I see it, she looks at the symbol and not the quality of the building, and 
with this type of uh, architecture, I think the problem that the, the the mistake that she makes is that she comes to America. America is capitalism, freedom, and this type of architecture. So she sort of conflates that. And uh, but 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 the irony is then also that <clears throat> that this is the type of architecture that you would see in in the medieval ages, where irrationality was sort of the the the, the, the cult of the day, right? Okay. So I think if she should really think what kind of architecture represents libertarianism or or uh, my way of thinking, wouldn't it be? the architecture in America of the late 1800s. I mean, isn't this what typically, well, Ayn Rand also says that this is the most libertarian period in in uh, American history. Yes, she said freest and not libertarian. Oh, libertarian. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, okay yeah. 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 But uh, as for this um, suggestion by Frank Lloyd Wright, it was never built, was it? No, no, no. 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 And um, uh, have you say, seen anything that Ayn Rand said about this uh, suggestion, this proposal? No. Do you? No, no. no. I don't think she would have liked it. I don't like it. It's so, sort of a, a. It looks sort of like falling water. Right, that building. Yes, uh, that's Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, most well-known building. Right, it's right, close right. to Pittsburgh. So I visited it a couple of years ago. Right, so I've been there. Because you were. Yeah, yes. Uh, and uh, falling water is a gorgeous building, and it fits perfectly to the landscape and the mountains and the woods surrounding it yeah. but that thing there I, I don't know the, the surroundings I don't know how it fits into the nature into the mountains into the woods around it so right. I have no idea how it works but it's not the kind of place I would have wanted and it wasn't built so I don't think Ayn Rand liked it much either I don't know that that's right. just my right. my speculation right. uh, but this is uh, I think uh, uh, she likes falling water. Falling water is my best known building. Let's just a sketch for something that looks like that and see if she wants it. And mm. she didn't. Mm. She, it wasn't constructed, so no, no. it wasn't built. So. so I think it had to do with, with also with the price. <laughs> well, uh, this story about that, uh, uh, she said something. It's cost too much, and then he uh. said, "Well, just go out and make some more money." Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But she wasn't interested. Okay, so <clears throat> the point is that a building should be a, a, a place to work and live that fits humans. That is a good place mm. to be in, and that says something about the size and the, the, the design and the plane structure and things like that. And that is what the objective theory of architecture is. It doesn't say that you have to build skyscrapers mm -hmm. and you can't build things that have mm -hmm. ornaments and things like that. Uh -huh. It should fit humans. It should, imagine uh, a place like Taj Mahal. It's an attempt to create heaven on earth. It's a beautiful place. I don't think, think that's uh, something an objectivist architect would not have created if he wanted to create something right, like that. Right. Because you could see that as as creating an yes. elevated existence. Yes, yes, exactly. An elevated view of, exactly. of how man could live. Yes, or, yes, right. yes. Right. So... I think it's fair that we end this with a fanfare for Ayn, Ayn Rand yes. because she's been an amazing, uh, yes. of an amazing importance to me. Yes. Why should a painter, an author, someone who works within culture engage in her philosophy? Oh. How can it benefit? Oh, there's so much to say about Short that. Short answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, she wrote four amazing novels. Yeah. And you get a great... 
literary experience by reading them. She's a great novelist. She is also an orig original thinker and philosopher in the Aristotelian tradition. Aristotle did lots of things in philosophy that were correct and true, but not quite. He was sort of influenced by Plato. And you can say with good uh -huh. reason that, that Ayn Rand completed the Aristotelian project. Okay. That is not saying that she just filled in some gaps here and there. <laughs> with some cement. <laughs> <laughs> she made major new contribution on... Uh, in metaphysics, stating yeah. the primacy of existence versus the primacy of consciousness. Yeah. We have to start somewhere. You either start with existence or with consciousness. Earlier philosophers had done one or the other, but Ayn Rand stated explicitly, and she, she said, you have to start with existence. She said, the senses give reliable information and reason is the only way to abstract knowledge. In, polit in, 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 in ethics, she said that man's life is a standard of value. Everything that makes man's life better is good, is morally good. And right. everything that harms man's life is morally bad. Right. Uh, in politics, she insisted on individual rights. Every individual has the right to freedom, to run his own life, to decide what is good for him and to act as long as he doesn't initiate force against other people. Right. And in aesthetics, she said, romantic realism is the right literature. And paintings have to be of something that is recognizable. It can't be just squiggles and squares. And she's a fun read. Read her. Read Ayn Rand. The best thing you can do. And if you have read her, read, read her again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming to the KO Palace. My pleasure. And thank you for watching. Remember, you can support our channel at kvopalace.com. I'll see you next month.